0: This week on Behind the Lens, New Orleans public schools are finally back in classrooms after a slight hurricane delay. We'll check in to see how it's going so far. A promising treatment for COVID is being administered locally by doctors at Ochsner and Tulane hospitals thanks to an emergency use declaration. How well does it work? And local Airbnbs are seeing some traffic. Tulane students who have tested positive for COVID or have been asked to quarantine are doing so at local short-term rentals with little guidance from the school on how they should be handling their isolation. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusens here. Hi, Marta. Hi. Health reporter Philip Kiefer. Hi, Philip. Hey, Carolyn. And our lens editor is here, Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good
1: morning.
0: First up, Marta, kids are finally back in school.
2: Can you talk about the return to school and how you guys are feeling? We're really excited to see our kids. Um, we've missed them terribly for the past six months. Um, there are definitely a
0: lot of challenges and concerns to this school year, but we feel prepared and that we are following the guidance of NOLA Public Schools in the roadmap tree opening.
2: Great. And- are y'all doing temperature checks like back in here? Yeah,
0: we have these really cool um, temperature reading okay. cameras. And so okay. they're mounted on the walls inside and then Ooh, they read I'm to not an app. Heard of that. Yeah. Um, so they're really neat and they read to an app and then they flag for high temperature. And then if you flag a high temperature, you get an individual temperature screen. Okay,
2: so it's like pointing at you kind of. Yeah, they're really neat. Awesome. Cool.
0: How is it looking? You guys went to school. What, what's it looking like?
2: Yeah, so we went to, out to a couple schools this morning. Um, I think, you know, what is most recognizable is that the first school we went to, McDonough 42, or I think now it's called 42 School. I mean, it was just adults donning all of this plastic protective equipment. Um, You know, they're pointing a touchless thermometer at a child's forehead. It just, it kind of felt uh, very sterile and like, you know, kind of a tough scenario, a little bit, I don't know, robotic or what other terms to describe it as. Um, The one thing obviously that carried through was educators voices right so you can mm. hear them enthusiastically welcoming students but it it was a little it was definitely a strange scene um to see kids lining up six feet apart you know that they're so little with their little face masks and little backpacks um oh but then we also went over to Plessy Community School and there was a little bit of a I would say warmer environment also the first school we were at was had the whole media gaggle and I think you know that was probably a little scary for kids too to have multiple TV stations um, set up across the street and stuff.
0: Did it seem? So at the
2: second school at Plessy, they had a band, a brass band playing, and oh. you know because that school is situated in the French Quarter, there are a lot more parents who were out of their cars and walking kids up to class just because uh, you can't drive into the school because it's so crowded there.
0: Did it seem dystopian or something like a sci-fi movie?
2: Dystopian. It was. Definitely a word that I heard from another reporter um, at the at the first site. Um, and like I said, I think these educators, you know, they already know these students. They've been online for a month together, but still to see just all of this PPE um, and these lines and just these little kids was a lot to take in.
0: And the kids are all wearing masks as well?
2: Yep. So we had uh, Minecraft masks and Spider-Man masks and <laughs> glittered masks and... <laughs> that was that was fun part of it
1: i'm wondering if you had any uh, opportunity to speak to teachers cuz this must have been kind of a, a an emotional roller coaster week for them uh you know some of these schools were scheduled after after you know sort of a lot of controversy that lasted for a while about when schools were going to start in person in new
2: orleans it was definitely a roller coaster week for them i didn't speak to any this morning um just because the district kept us on the other side of the street from educators But teachers I spoke to earlier in the week were just, you know, on Monday, they were waiting for a call. Is school going to be canceled? Is it not going to be canceled? Um, And then they still had to teach on Monday, but they had prepared in-person lessons and then they were teaching virtually. Um, So I think it it has been a lot of work for both uh, educators and families this week, just adapting to those delays from Hurricane Sally.
0: Did you try to talk to any parents?
2: Yes, I I spoke with several parents. Um, I would say most of them were very happy to have their kids go back. The younger kids are the ones who started this week, so pre-kindergarten through fourth grade. Um, and what a lot of those parents said was, you know, that they thought that younger kids needed to be in the school setting and be socializing with other kids. And one mom gave me like a double thumbs up, you know, just ready, I think, to have the kids out of the house while she was trying to work.
0: So under the new guidelines, classes now limited to 25 students. What is the normal class size?
2: Well, for the youngest students, it can be in that 20 to 22 range. Um, And this will end up being about 23 kids because the 25 also has to include the teacher and any other special education um, adult who may need to enter the room throughout the day. Okay. Um, But then in high schools or for like gym class, you can get up into the 30, 35 range. Um, But the older kids aren't back in session yet.
0: New
1: Orleans is, of course, still in phase two. The rest of the state... Is now in phase three and under under uh, Bessie Board of uh, Elementary and Secondary Education board guidelines. Phase three means up to 50 people in a classroom. Is that right? I believe so. To me, it sounds like for a lot of these classes, where you know 25 is still not exactly an empty classroom. Um, the bigger the bigger uh, impact might be the might be for transportation are we hearing much from the district about whether schools are having trouble with uh, transportation under the current guidelines
2: I haven't heard too much about that yet and you know one factor on that is that um, about I believe you know 30 percent of kids roughly are still choosing to learn at home so of those kids that we saw back today at inspire it was about 55 percent of kids who returned um but superintendent lewis said that district ride about like i think he said 30 35 percent are still staying home so that definitely helps with the transportation angle and then also the district has asked parents if they can to bring their kids individually just to help keep group sizes small And so i think I think that's really helped out as well. There were a lot of parents, kids being dropped off by cars today.
0: Do you know what percentage of school of kids use the school buses?
2: I don't know that across the district, though. I I believe since it's widely available and because students don't go to the school closest to their home necessarily, that is a pretty high percentage. Um, I think at some of the larger networks, it's you 80-90% know, of kids.
0: So it's possible that the 50% reduction of bus capacity, even even given the guidelines or the urging of the district to, to have alternative methods to get to school, it, it may be an issue.
2: I think one reason they probably pushed back on that reopening date was that they anticipated that busing would be one of the issues.
1: The schedule is that this phased reopening with Kindergarten through 4th goes through uh, September 25th, is that right, and then 5th through 12th in October but that's dependent on what the current metric they're watching is, which is test positivity. Is that all correct?
2: Right, so October 12th is the date that we've been seeing for older kids. So I would expect an announcement in probably that first week of October about whether or not we think we're gonna see that. And positivity is definitely what they've been focused on. Um, Obviously, um, they're not ignoring case counts, but they've definitely pivoted to that case positivity rate you know, even when we saw high case, rate, higher case rates or higher case numbers um, with Tulane students and other students coming back to town.
0: Okay. You saw a lot of PPE. They were taking temperatures. What else are they doing during the day, throughout the day, to keep safe for everybody?
2: Um, they've also spaced desks apart to make sure that uh, kids don't have too much interaction, or, you know, are six feet away from each other when they can be, and then other... Restrictions like schools aren't allowed to have band right now because that's a
1: Sing, singing and wind and brass instruments can all be uh, can all be a, a big problem for in terms of spreading COVID. In other words,
0: so yeah. band is band and, and choir canceled for now.
2: Well, they can do you know written work, so I'm sure kids aren't exactly thrilled about that.
0: Uh, all so right,
2: it's music music theory. You could be doing. Oh God. <laughs> What about- I remember that was not my favorite part of- <laughs>
1: Yeah, not quite as much fun.
0: Especially as a six-year-old. Um, what about recess?
2: They're gonna have outdoor recess. Um, that's probably actually one of the better parts of the day, right? Because they won't be in a classroom together. But I know they are asking students to wear masks at all times, even the young ones.
0: And I think you said earlier, 30% of students have opted to stay home?
2: Right, and that's across the district. Um, that could look very different school to school.
0: All right. so. Try to paint a picture for me, uh, how a teacher is teaching virtually and in-person kids simultaneously.
2: Yeah, you know, I haven't seen that happen live yet, but what I've heard from teachers is that at some schools, they're going to just be recording those lessons, and then kids can watch them later. At other schools, I'm not exactly sure how they're handling that interface, and I, I think we're about to find out, you know, I think... There's going to be some lessons learned this week, probably, and um, it's, it's all new to everybody. Wow.
1: I know in some other districts, and I don't know if this is happening in New Orleans, that uh, they've, uh, they've brought in, um, you know, third-party vendor services for that. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you're seeing that at some charter schools in the city as well so over the last month or so we've seen a lot of back and forth about transparency in reporting on school districts and individual schools you know as we reported a little while back uh, the department of health took uh took school outbreak data temporarily off its uh off its website that we were being told by the NOAA public schools districts as well as the department of health health that there was going to be some sort of reporting mechanism that was a little more specific and contained a little more information uh then they kind of backtracked on that and now i see on the outbreak data that they have uh they have re-added k-12 schools but it has very little information about where outbreaks are happening and in fact it hasn't been updated since uh since they added it a week or two ago Do we know anything from the district or from the state about when we're gonna start seeing this data now that basically, you know, nearly every district in the state has started uh, in person?
2: The district has told us that they're gonna do a weekly update and that they were gonna, when we asked, they said they were gonna break it down by campus. So that is good news, Um, but we haven't seen those numbers yet. Um, there's, they should be coming out in a weekly release, so I don't know if they will start this week or next week. Um, but obviously, we're looking forward to seeing those. Thanks, Marta. Thank
0: you. You're listening to Behind the Lens, I'm Carolyn Heldman. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and The Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who reported the lens subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org newsletters. Thank you. All right, Philip, we have two stories on your beat. The first one is there's a new emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma therapy that New Orleans doctors are administering right now, but they're facing some questions. So explain what convalescent plasma therapy is to start.
3: Yeah, so the idea with convalescent plasma therapy is that people who have recovered from COVID, who are convalescent, um, carry antibodies in their blood or in their blood plasma the liquid part of blood without the cells um that might help other people fight covid um and so in convalescent plasma therapy plasma is drawn from someone who's recovered from the virus and then injected into someone who is either early in the process of fighting it or in critical condition um, There have been similar convalescent plasma treatments used for measles and the Spanish flu, absolutely, and it was found to be helpful in those cases. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's helpful in the case of COVID-19, and so that's what um, the open questions are about. Since April, or maybe even late March, um, the FDA has allowed hospitals and other care centers to administer convalescent plasma. Tulane uh, Medical Center here was one of the first hospitals in the U.S. to be doing that because we had one of the earliest outbreaks in the country. Um, but those that early authorization had to be part of a trial that the uh, FDA would be using to evaluate the efficacy of the treatment, what changed is that now the treatment can be given to anyone and data doesn't have to be collected about its efficacy. The FDA has decided that it's close enough to believing that it's effective, that everyone should get it, um, regardless of whether or not they are part of a trial. The problem is that the National Institute of Health immediately after the fda issued this authorization released their own statement saying that they didn't believe that the science was anywhere near good enough to justify this and that ongoing trials were still needed to determine whether or not um, the treatment would be effective if administered widely and the risk there is that it isn't effective and that money will be spent and time will be spent on a treatment that doesn't end up actually saving lives.
1: Yeah, and, and, and I think the interesting dilemma that's in your story that doctors are encountering, and I think some of them spoke to this in your story, is that it disrupts the scientific process, but it also creates sort of an ethical dilemma for a lot of doctors, because this is now allowed by the FDA. This is a treatment that's allowed by the FDA. We're dealing with people who are hard, you know, some of them are dying, some of them are in very are in, in critical shape in a hospital. Now as a, you know, a doctor might believe in science, wants to go through, you know, all the steps of a trial and everything, but a proper trial involves giving some giving some people placebos and giving other people the actual treatment um and now you're in a position where you have this treatment available and and it doesn't it may not feel right anymore to give someone a placebo just for the sake of science
3: where that tension was really popping up is um Dr. Nakulai Saba who's a researcher and clinician at Tulane Medical Center um, who's been administering these trials was planning to join a study through Vanderbilt medical center that would have done that controlled testing, given some patients a placebo, salt water, and given some patients the plasma. They had actually said that they would join the Vanderbilt study. And then once this authorization um, came out, they decided that they no longer felt comfortable ethically with potentially withholding this treatment from their patients and that they wouldn't join the study that would provide that sort of gold standard of evidence to show that plasma therapy actually works.
0: Because they're so convinced about the efficacy of this particular treatment,
3: yeah dr saba said that based on what he's experienced in the 16 or 17 patients that he's treated um especially those patients who have been given the plasma early in the course of the disease um tulane was a little unique in that it was testing plasma on patients who weren't yet intubated um and giving plasma to people who weren't as critical as elsewhere in the country um what he had seen was that it appeared to spark rapid recovery he says he's planning to publish this data soon um although obviously it hasn't gone through peer review yet but based on his experience in these previous trials he said you know if i were the one in the hospital i would want this and therefore i don't feel comfortable not giving it to someone when I spoke to the primary investigator of the Vanderbilt study, he said that they've seen it go both ways. Some places, some other um, hospitals have said, we don't feel comfortable participating anymore. Some have said, well, we had previously been acquiring plasma through this preliminary FDA investigation, and now we don't have a supply chain for it under the emergency use authorization. So the only way for us to actually access plasma is to go to Vanderbilt and participate in their controlled trial. What makes it concerning, one, is that it does throw this kind of doubt into the randomized control trials or into participation around the randomized control trials, even if we can't quantify exactly what that looks like. And two, there's all of this swirling uh, swirling debate over what will happen if an under-tested vaccine is similarly given, um, given an emergency use authorization. I, I think we're seeing sort of a trial run of that here and now with convalescent plasma where um, the stakes in the case of a vaccine might be much higher. So the, the same kind of uncertainty around not administering the vaccine or whether or not to administer an under-tested vaccine might have much more dramatic consequences.
1: But uh, you spoke to at least one doctor in your story, if I remember correctly, who seemed to believe that um, this this sort of, you know, jumping the gun in this way was less likely to happen in a, in a vaccine.
3: That's what people here say. Yeah. Okay. Whether that will be the case nationally, I think is an open question.
2: Philip, is there any worry that we, like, might run low on plasma if, you know, now this has been green-lighted for everyone to use it?
3: Yeah. Um, that's been a continuing challenge even during the trial phase of this. Um, all of the blood bank officials I talked to um, said that they need more donors to keep um, to keep administering this. And there's definitely nothing <laughs> harmful about actually donating plasma if you've recovered from COVID. And if it turns out that this is really effective, then that's going to be a necessary step in making sure that people in critical condition can access it.
0: All right, moving on to the next story, Tulane students who have tested positive or have come into contact with someone who has been positive are being told to self-isolate and you've found that they're moving to Airbnbs throughout the city. How many students did you find that are taking this route?
3: The numbers aren't clear or public. Um, as of yesterday, Tulane was reporting 111 active cases in students through their online dashboard that gives um, school-wide data. They also reported that 51 of those students with active cases were isolating in patterson hall which is um, a dorm on campus that's been set aside for students who test positive it provides on-call medical care Um, students are confined to the dorm and to their rooms in the dorm for the duration of their isolation but so if you have 111 students with active cases, and 51 in Patterson means that 60 are off campus. What I don't know is how many of those 60 previously lived off campus, how many of them um, just rented an apartment elsewhere, and how many of them were in campus dorms, which have been hit very hard by the virus. I've talked to students who say that um, there were maybe all but one suite on their floor was in quarantine or isolation.
0: So what happens when a student tests positive? What, what does the school say? What guidance are they given?
3: So they get a call from, or at least the students I spoke to um, whose experiences didn't necessarily line up with the policy that was described to me, but um, they get a call from a contact tracer who, is an employee of the school who says, you've tested positive, what's your plan? And they say that they're given the option to move into Patterson or asked if they have an off-campus rental lined up. Um, The students I talked to didn't have off-campus rentals lined up when they were called. And so in one case, um, they got off the phone, set up the rental and talked to the contact tracers again later and gave them the address um in the other case they just got off the phone set up a off-campus rental and then um weren't contacted until a few days later and in the 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 people you've talked
1: talked to the the pattern that emerged is that they weren't really getting kind of instructions on on how to properly isolate right Exactly. It
3: sounds like what they were told was, do one or the other, get off campus. Um, but they said, and this also goes for students who decided to isolate on campus. They said that the same thing had happened. Um, but they, they said there wasn't anything about, you know, make sure that the um, landlord knows that you're positive or how to get to this off-campus rental, or what the specific expectations are once you move from an on-campus setting to an off-campus setting. Um, both of the students I talked to who did stay in Airbnbs describes basically a feeling of just being told, get out of here, go. Um,
0: <laughs> Were they issuing giant scarlet C's for their shirts that they could wear? <laughs> no.
2: I feel like that's one of the big questions about the college kids is that, you know, they, if they're at Tulane, a lot of those kids are from out of state. And so moving off campus, like what type of support do you actually have for getting food or for, you know, getting classroom materials? Granted, a lot of that is probably online, but, you know, they would have ready meal access and I believe meal delivery at those other sites that they were quarantining. So yeah, then how much is a student potentially going out in the community or But how much are they spending on eating out every day? That gets expensive.
1: When we were talking about, uh, um, you know, particularly school, you know, K-12 through schools reopening, and, you know, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, um, how how, uh, the school district had kind of pivoted its key metric from daily case count 2% positivity, um, part of the rationale there was, well, we've got all these college students. And they're doing mass testing, so of course, test daily case counts are going to go up. Um, but you know, the the question that remained was, well, that these college students are are in the community, right? But the underlying message that, that I got was, well, these colleges, you know, they've got strict protocols. They, these are almost closed environments, um, so that's not something that we should have to worry about all that much. But then, it. It turns out that, that right. you know some of the some of these college students are going into the communities and going into the neighborhoods and staying in Airbnbs and apparently in at least some cases not getting a lot of guidance about how, how to do this properly. Obviously these are you know, we're talking about people who are legal adults, um, but the, the university has you know has sort of declared that they are going to they are going to take a degree of responsibility for this. And at least in the, uh, cases that Bill talked to, it, it, it seems that what is being described in the policy is not what's actually happening.
3: The other thing that I should say is Tulane also has just far more students being sent to isolation and quarantine than any other school because they are performing this surveillance testing. So they know who all of their students are, um in or who have tested positive, whereas other schools are relying on outside testing and self-reporting. That said, that also means that um, the issue isn't just students who have tested positive. It's also close contacts. And again, a huge number of undergrads, the students I was talking to said that most of their friends at this point have been in quarantine. So quarantine is in the sort of specific language of this when someone has been a close contact but hasn't tested positive yet. So students were telling me most students have been in quarantine. Um, a challenge there is once a student goes into quarantine off campus they might end up developing the virus that's why they're in quarantine or they might end up becoming infectious um and once they're off campus they do drop out of the surveillance testing Mm -hmm. for the period that they're there um Mm -hmm. and so they and this was a point raised to me by um Suzanne Strafe Bourgeois who's a epidemiologist at um, LSU, that the the students who subsequently would test positive but have moved off campus don't end up appearing in positive testing data because once they move off campus, um, they're likely not being tested. The students, at least, that I talked to said that they were not solicited to come back to campus for a test. It's essentially you spend 14 days from the contact in quarantine, and if you don't develop symptoms, then you are cleared.
1: And let me ask you, we know what the situation has been for the students you talked to who went to Airbnbs. What is the, the distinction between that experience and the experience of the students who are opting into Patterson Hall?
3: So I guess the key point, point, this is what Marta raised, is um, students who are in Patterson Hall get regular check-ins um they're having meals delivered to them they're not allowed to leave they're actually being actively monitored by the school um all expenses are paid when somebody stays in patterson hall this is something that is administered by the school it's pretty important to understanding this dynamic i'm not gonna speculate too much more beyond this but the to go off campus, a student has to be able to pay for their living expenses, especially food, um, on their own or with their family. The other quarantine option is this wing of the Hyatt Regency downtown. It's and that's not great exposed place. but not positive. Exactly, first, so students who are exposed but not positive can go to the Hyatt. There's a separate tower they're confined to the tower. They can walk in the halls during the day, but they can't leave. They can't go outside of their rooms at night. Um, I talked to students there that say their staff watching. Again, food is being paid for. That stay is being paid for by the college and they're getting tested regularly there. Um, so the students I spoke to said that they actually had you know, been exposed didn't test positive, but people they knew did test positive while at the Hyatt and moved from there into Patterson.
0: And what about when their quarantine time is done?
3: Ending quarantine and isolation ends up being complicated in terms of testing because people who are no longer actively infectious can continue to test positive for months afterwards, um, especially if they're one of these COVID long haulers who has neurological symptoms that persist long after the active infection. And so the CDC guideline is that if you exhibit symptoms, um, you can start moving about the world again. You can end your isolation 10 days after those symptoms end. If you were a close contact but not showing symptoms, you can end your quarantine 14 days after that contact as long as you don't have symptoms. And it changes a bit if you have symptoms. But basically, so students who have gone off campus get an email the day before, so day 13, day nine, saying, if you have not exhibited symptoms for this time period, you are cleared. And then they just re-enter the normal surveillance testing protocol where undergraduate students living on campus are tested twice a week.
0: Great work, Philip, thanks. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for your work this week.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you.
0: This is Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, health reporter Philip Kiefer, and the editor of The Lens, Charles
2: Maldonado. Thanks for listening.